0: A a tough topic for anybody who is facing an expert witness in court or anyone who is looking at court proceedings. I have with me Lucy Guinera. Lucy is a PhD candidate, or we are almost done with August, Lucy. Are you completed with your PhD?
1: No, one more year of dissertation and then a year of internship. So, not quite, but getting there.
0: Okay, all right. Well, I'm right there with you. I'm looking at about another year as well, and this has been the longest, longest years of my life getting this this (laughs) dissertation completed. So I'm all about the empathy here. Um, Lucy has worked with Daniel Murray and uh, several other um, uh, professors researchers in coming up with some research at the University of Virginia that has pretty, um, pretty much gobsmacked me. You know, sometimes, Lucy, when we um, deal with things, um, uh, oftentimes we, of course, make um, our own opinions about things. But that doesn't mean anything unless there's research to substantiate it. When there's research, when there's data to substantiate what we suspect, then it becomes something real. And I think anybody who's worked in uh, any kind of advocacy position, any kind of uh, position where they are forced to see court proceedings um, has definitely formulated some opinions about what it means um, to have an expert witness. And you now have participated in some of the research that pretty much lays that bare for us Can you tell me, first of all, uh, you're in the field of uh, psychology, forensic psychology. Can you tell me, can you explain to me what forensic psychology means?
1: Sure. So the word forensic by itself just means related to the legal system. So I think when people hear forensic, a lot of the times they think kind of like CSI stuff, which might be the case if you're talking about forensic science, so dealing with DNA and fingerprints. But uh, for forensic psychology, it's um, you know, psychology applied to the legal system. So forensic psychologists answer questions for the courts about people, particularly about their mental state. That's that's how I would describe it.
0: Okay. And these uh, cases, uh, forensic psychology experts, are often called into court in cases of child custody disputes or where there's perhaps an adult whose competency is questioned. Um, other sure. cases can you think of where, um, yeah. where psychologists... Uh,
1: Sure. So some typical forensic evaluations might be child custody, um, competency to stand trial, you know, is somebody uh, fit to proceed with a criminal proceeding? Um, Insanity is another one people hear a lot about in the media or the news, you know, was someone, uh, did they understand the nature, character and consequences of their behavior at the time of the crime or were they too ill to do so? Um, let's see, risk assessment is another big one. You know, how likely is it that somebody is going to commit some kind of violent act or sexually violent act in the future? Um, you know, there's sort of the forensic psychologist's work on the criminal side. That's, you know, competency, sanity, but also on the civil side, doing custody evaluations, uh, fitness for duty evaluations. You know, is it appropriate for someone to come back to work if they're very ill or we have concern about, you know, potential violent behavior, um, the emotional injury can come example, up sometimes.
0: Yeah, uh, with the elderly, I know a lot of times, it's, is is the elderly person competent or are they just quirky or, you know, that kind of thing. So, sure, okay, sure. So that that's what an expert witness does. And, of course, mm-hmm. um, Any field today has to have the paperwork, and so we rely, in forensic psychology, um, there's reliance on testing and, um, you know, certain things to try to come up with objective, quantifiable um, data to support what is being testified to. But a lot of it, uh, I I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm grasping here, but I would say probably... 75%, 80% 75 80% of it is just what that person feels as an expert, as an experienced person, um, as a psychologist. Am, am, I, am I right there?
1: So, I mean, this is really the crux of the whole issue is when you're doing a forensic evaluation, you know, we have professional obligations and standards to be um, as objective as possible and to use uh, sort of best practices or best standards. The issue is that what's available to you as a psychologist in terms of what would be your best practice or best standard differs for different types of evaluations. Um, So as one example, if you're going to do a risk assessment evaluation, you know, is this person likely to commit a violent act in the future, it's really become standard practice where you would be you know it would be frowned upon in the legal system if you didn't use a standardized empirical risk assessment measure because there are many available and many that have been developed and are pretty good um, but that's just sort of one domain, but in some other domains, particularly some of the civil domains, there's less uh, there's less available that's been well tested um, uh you know and validated for you to use, and so it does have to fall back a little bit more on. Um, kind of your clinical judgment. We're always trying to be objective, but um, there's, a, yeah, there's always going to be a gap between uh, what the science is giving us to do that's going to be objective and um, what people are asking us to say in court.
0: Well, and let's, you know, on this show we talk a lot about courts with child custody and domestic violence and abuse cases. And yes. I know that I have given talks to groups of uh, uh, professionals about child custody and abuse, coercive control, that kind of thing. And sometimes I am absolutely gobsmacked by the questions that I get and the attitudes that I that I see. Um, and I do this around the country, so I'm not saying that this is one, in one area or another. But, for example, parental alienation, it has just... It has absolutely not received good uh, feedback from either the legal community, the legal uh, law law organizations, psychology organizations. I mean, everybody that supposedly is uh, professional in this area comes back and says parental alienation is bogus. And yet I am consistently and repeatedly um, asked questions about parental alienation and how it really does exist, and we know that it really does exist, by credentialed court experts. How, I mean, if, if if we're relying on as objective a data as we can, how does this keep coming up?
1: Yeah, so, you know, this is a huge issue. I don't know too much about the PAS specifically, but um, in general... Few states have, have any standard to credential a forensic psychologist, um, and the states that do somewhere between a third and a half can often have pretty weak standards. So something like, you know, in order to be credentialed as a forensic psychologist in our state, you have to attend one workshop, or you have to have had previous experience <laughs> or something like that.
0: And, and, and so, if, um, that, if that's typical, it's probably, and there's, there's no restrictions on who conducts the workshop. So... Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, so the many states have nothing, and the states that do have something often have sort of less than you might want when you're thinking about, you know, what do we want to make sure these people have when they're doing evaluations? So it's definitely the case that out in the real world you have a variety of training, background, experience, you know, tools or instruments available to you, things you've been trained on, um, and sometimes it's going to be less than we'd want. That's true, um, you know, especially in areas that might be under-resourced there might not be, you know, a great, uh, well-trained, recently trained, board-certified forensic psychologist if you're sort of, you know, in a rural area or other under-resourced area. And a lot of times courts have to go with whoever's available. So a lot of times sort of general psychologists who don't have special forensic training or experience are the ones who are doing these evaluations for the courts just because they're the only people who are around. Um, And so I would imagine that's how things happen like this where, you have someone who's not an expert in child custody evaluations ends up doing them because they kind of need to be done, um, and there might be no one else available, or someone someone takes a liking to it, even if they haven't haven't gotten a lot of specific training. And usually, the states well, and, are not saying no, you can't do this because you don't, you know, there there's no there's often no standard from the states about um, what you need to be able to do these kind of evaluations.
0: And so that brings us right into the uh, research, one of the research studies that, that I've found um, that we're going to be talking about, and it is a study with you and Daniel Murray and Marcus Bocchini. I hope I'm saying his name right, Professor. Um, the, this uh, study is Why Do Forensic Experts Disagree? Sources of Unreliability and Bias in Forensic Psychology Evaluation. What does unreliability mean? And how is that different from bias?
1: Sure. So um, when we're talking about reliability, there are a lot of different kind of scientific types of reliability, but but what we mostly deal with is called inter-rater reliability. So that's asking how likely is it or how often does it happen that two different people, two different psychologists come to the same conclusion about the same criminal case or civil case. So, you know, if psychologist A and psychologist B are doing a competency evaluation on the same defendant, how often are they going to agree? So that's that's what uh, reliability is. Um, and I, I would say the reason we have the words unreliability and bias is because uh, bias sort of brings in an understanding of. I think a a kind of a layman's understanding of malfeasance or kind of um, uh, like malignant error, and that's just not always the case. I mean, one of the first things we point out in this article is that, or I I would say not even most likely the case, Um, one of the first things we point out is that forensic evaluations are very, very difficult, complex procedures, and so that even if you have the best trained, best credentialed people in the world, you're still going to have. Uh, pretty often the case that psychologist A and psychologist B come to different conclusions just because these are complex gray area kind of evaluations where reliability is difficult even under the best of circumstances.
0: Okay. Um, so you're say, if I'm summing it up a little bit, uh, what you're saying is mm-hmm. it's a pretty tough job and yep. not everybody is well-trained in order to do the job and standards for doing the job vary um, and yeah. some of them are minimal um and there's not really there there really isn't nor can there be some sort of guidebook or checklist on how to do all this stuff and interpret this stuff right so yeah so that's that, that's
1: kind of the that's the goal would be to have um standards of very clear standards of practice or checklists or guidelines um but depending on the the evaluation that's kind of more or less possible um and uh you know, for for another example, uh, think insanity evaluation. So, for an insanity evaluation, you're interviewing somebody, looking at their collateral records, talking to sources close to them, maybe giving psychological testing. But all of these sources of information might be conflicting. It's all complex. You're um, you're talking about a you know a crime that might have happened months or even years ago. There's not going to be a perfect way to just kind of line it all up and, you know, say, have a computer algorithm figure out whether someone's going to be sane or insane. Um, and so the, the closest we can get to is having uh, uniform standards of practice where psychologists are doing the same types of things, asking the same types of questions. But it's not going to be it's never going to be identical for lots of reasons. Um, and so there is going well, to be and sort frankly- of human judgment that comes into it.
0: Yeah, well, exactly, and and quite frankly, even though in our society today and in, in our culture, we do want all these standardized rules, we want standardized everything, thinking that somehow or other we can just tick things off on a list and then everything will be fair and objective. In fact, yeah. it's not. I mean, that's a pretty yeah. – it, it, it actually um, – and, and I can think of everything from, you know, retail transactions to complaints about your phone service, to I mean, and anything – um, we are inundated with well, this is what my checklist says, and I can't vary from the checklist and ultimately it 's not a very efficient way to do um, uh, to to accomplish anything, um, but I understand the desire to have something standardized, but that it seems to me is not really the answer uh, to eliminating any kind of bias or unreliability. Um, do you agree there?
1: Um, so I guess one thing I'd point out is that we're never going to eliminate unreliability and bias. It, it's, it's never going to happen. Um, these are, you know, even with, how should I say this, to set the stage, even with pretty simple types of procedures, say kind of medical procedures, things like counting decayed teeth or measuring organ size on an ultrasound or deciding if someone has, you know, arthritis from a, you know, a hand x-ray. Even these these kind of more simple or objective medical procedures that we think of as pretty reliable, you know, we trust our doctor. If you look at the inter-rater reliability on those, it's not even that good. Um, So just to kind of set the stage, uh, the unreliability of forensic procedures is shouldn't be surprising, but it's still kind of worrying because it affects people's lives. So there's always that question of how good can we, you know, how much reliability can we even expect? what would be acceptable um, versus what would be beyond what's even sort of theoretically possible. Um, and yeah. like I said, well, even when you're, you're dealing with kind of simple procedures, there's still a high level of unreliability.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I'm kind of, you know, trying to take this in, in a logical a- uh, manner. So we are calling in these experts uh, to come to court mm-hmm. and, and yeah. help explain to the judge or the jury why we're right. And so we call this expert, and we already are burdened with the difficulty of an assessment, the difficulty of that task, the possible limited training that that they have and understanding and exposure to current research, then we have the problem of not really having a, a, a generalized um, um, protocol uh, an under, uh, yes. some, some sort of standardization for doing mm-hmm. these assessments, and then we've got the individual um, person's biases and opinions and the way we look at life um, yeah absolutely. That, you know so you know we've got we've got that, but then we've got this thing called adversarial allegiance mhm. What does that mean, adversarial allegiance?
1: So adversarial allegiance is the tendency for um, legal experts to have their opinions drift toward the side that retained them, meaning usually the prosecution or the defense. So through um, uh, a recent but sort of growing line of research, you know, looking at forensic psychology specifically, we found kind of over and over again whenever we look at it, whenever we test it, that a forensic psychologist hired by the prosecution tends to form opinions that are more favorable to the prosecution, and uh, experts that are hired by the defense tend to form opinions that are more favorable to the defense.
0: Okay, so is this a case of follow the money, or could it be that people, uh, experts who were approached by the defense who didn't think they could um, do that just backed out? Um, you know, so how, how there are, know
1: the yeah, those are both, both reasonable points and things that are brought up a lot. Um, to, to point, to go to the money one first, um, I will say that I am, I am sure that there are forensic psychologists, you know, in this country or in this world who follow the money and are what you might classically be called a hired gun. Like, I, I'm sure that does happen. However, there's really no reason to think that that's the norm um, or that's typical because there are a lot of other sources of adversarial allegiance that seem much more common, even among what I would say are the majority of psychologists of sort of goodwill and sort of equitable spirits. So, you know, the, uh, okay, one major one.
0: explain that sure. in layman's terms. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so,
1: um, so there are multiple ways, multiple reasons why someone who's even someone who's trying to be fair who's trying to be objective, who's trying to do the best they can, might more often than not come to an opinion that drifts towards the side that that hired them. So here's one. One would be um, these very common cognitive biases that affect all people um, in all sort of judgment circumstances. So, for example, uh, when we are um, trying to come to an opinion about something, um, if we've already kind of got an idea of what we think is right, we are more likely to look for evidence that supports what we already think, rather than look for evidence that just confirms what we already think. Everybody does this in every kind of circumstance. You know, if, you're, if you've are if got a political point of view that goes in one direction, you're more likely to look for evidence that supports what you already think versus something that's gonna um, just confirm that. So there's no reason to think that psychologists don't also do that when they're using forensic cases. So let me put it to you this way. Maybe you've spoken to an attorney on the phone um, to, to sort of set up the evaluation. This is what typically happens. And that attorney says to you, you know, hey, doc, um, I've got a real bad guy here. Uh, maybe they're the prosecutor. I've got a real bad guy here. You know, I want you to take a look at him, uh, do a risk assessment, tell me what you think. So what have you heard? Already you've got in your mind, I've got a real bad guy here. You know, the human mind can't just forget things that it's heard. So even if you're trying to be objective, you're kind of coming into an evaluation, coming into the situation thinking this is a bad guy. And so if you see some kind of, you know, uh, ambiguous evidence from this person, you might be more likely to interpret it as negative, interpret it as being risky, because you've already got this idea in your head that, um, uh, that this guy is going to be a bad guy. So that would be one, okay. uh, what I call the sort of cognitive bias explanation.
0: Okay. Um, and
1: the another other. would be, yeah, another would be the sort of uh, uh, us versus them mentality. So this is another thing that happens to all people at all times, which is if you're on a team, um, you think that you want your team to win, you want your team to do well, and um, it's kind of hard to fight that. And so uh, t- most of the time, you know, you're always supposed to be objective as a forensic psychologist, but you are being hired by a particular side. And so even if you're trying to, you know, shoot straight, you feel this sort of, um, affiliation toward the person who hired you. You want to please them. You want to find solutions you know, or, or conclusions that um, are the direction they want, not because you're, you're consciously trying to bias your results, but because we have that kind of unconscious pull to please the people who are, we're working with and who are on our team. So That's kind of the, the us versus them explanation uh, for why adversarial allegiance might occur. Um, and then okay. the, the last one that I'd point out is another one that you, you mentioned in the beginning. Is um, what I'd call a selection bias. So it might be the case that a savvy attorney kind of knows that, you know, Dr. A is more likely to find in his favor than Dr. B. And so if they call up Dr. A, then they're going to be more likely to get, you know, a favorable result. Um, or they might talk to doctors A, B, C, D, E, and F. And just pick the one person who sides with them. So maybe, you know, four out of five psychologists would not be on their side, but one out of five is. And so if they, you know, have the money and time to go to lots of people, they can just uh, choose to go with the one who agreed with them and agreed with the side that they want. So those are, those are three major sources besides money that probably contribute to adversarial allegiance for all people. The com- uh, cognitive bias, us versus them, and then selection effects.
0: Okay. All right, so knowing this, this isn't a secret, mm-hmm. um, and yet when experts, uh, want, I'm, I'm, you say blue, I say yellow, I find my, my forensic psychologist, you find your forensic psychologist, they both go into court, they both testify mm-hmm. that yes, blue, yes, yellow, and what does that get us? Why does that work? Why is it beneficial?
1: Yeah, so you're talking about the battle of the experts where you've got, you know, Dr. A saying blue, Dr. B saying yellow, and they disagree. So um, I will say that in America, we have um, a long tradition of uh, hoping that the adversarial legal system is a good way to decide to, to arrive at truth. Um, we kind of think as a you know as a country as a legal tradition that if we get two sides in court to battle it out, um, you know the judge or the jury will be able to to listen to those different sides and figure out what they think is best and move forward. And to some extent, that might be true and acceptable for experts as well. you know on a lot of these um, a lot of the cases where you'll end up with a battle of the experts really are gray area cases that are very difficult and where, you know, people of good faith might legitimately disagree. And in that case, you know, who uh, you just, you put them in front of the judge or jury and sort of let them, let them sort it out, you know, go on the strength of their reasoning or the strength of their evidence. Um, so that's kind of the, the rosier picture here that, even, you know, there are a lot of gray area cases out there where reasonable people disagree, and we put them both in front of a court and, and kind of let the, let the system work it out. So that's the, that's the rosier picture. There's definitely the other side, too, where, you know, say you have a situation where, let's say, 19 out of 20 psychologists would side with one side, and a lawyer has enough time or money to, you know, consult with a bunch of psychologists until they find the one out of 20 that disagrees. Um, so in that case, it may, you know, it may be more of a waste of people's time and energy to, um, uh, to be bringing this sort of disagreement in front of the court. But you would hope that in the adversarial system, it would, be, it would become evident that, you know, this one out of 20 psychologists, his opinions aren't grounded in as good evidence or his reasoning isn't as good or didn't use, you know, as good procedures. And that would come out in the, in the legal process. So that's, that's the hope. Um, whether that actually happens in real life. Um, I'm sure it doesn't a lot of the time, but that is that is the goal of even having of having this battle, the experts.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that, and, and this is anecdotal here, one of the things that I hear over and over again, and I've actually seen it in my personal life, is, um, is say a divorce case. Dad says mom's crazy. Mom says dad's abusive and they all line up, they, each side lines up their, their experts to uh, substantiate that. How can a psychologist just talk with one side and then actually, I, and I've heard it, and then actually say, well, um, yes, he, he has um, this psychological problem and he has that psychological problem, but he didn't have them before she did that to him. Or, um, well, uh, she did such and such and such and such, and that caused him to blah, 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 blah. Or he did this, and then she did that. He doesn't know. I I mean, I can understand how a psychologist could say, well, she reports that she didn't have blah, blah, blah before he did X, Y, Z. But I hear it over and over again, where they just, I I mean, and I sit there thinking, how can you, as a psychologist, testify in court, something that you really don't know all you've heard is second part i mean if if that if, if television is to be my guideline whenever somebody says well i heard so and so say well then the judge says you can't report that that's because that's just hearsay and yet i hear psychologists doing that in court is that have you seen that and and if so i guess the resources what are the the what are the sources and what is the protocol that a forensic psychologist can use in testifying?
1: Yeah, so to, to go to your main point of um, what happens if you're only talking, you know, you're only talking to one side, you're only getting information from one side. Ideally, right. you know, this is best practices. Ideally, you get as many what we call collateral sources as possible. Um, so as a forensic psychologist, you're always assuming that everyone you talk to has some sort of angle, Um, not in necessarily necessarily a malicious way, but, you know, we all present ourselves in different ways when we have some kind of outcome on the line. Um, You know, if you're talking to somebody who maybe committed a bad crime and is trying to get an insanity defense, you would sort of always have the question or concern in your mind, you know, is this person trying to present themselves as more ill than they really are? And same thing with a custody case. You know, I'm not as familiar with custody, but, you know, if you're talking to someone who really wants Um, wants custody of their child, you would have in the back of your mind, is it possible that this person is presenting themselves as, you know, more positive than they really are? Are they presenting their partner as more negative than they really are? That's kind of, that that should be the base level assumption for a forensic psychologist is, I know that I may not be getting the, I, I probably am not getting the unvarnished truth here um, that's, that's kind of ground zero. And so the antidote to that as much as you can is to get as many different sources as possible, all these collateral sources. So you can kind of triangulate the truth. So, you know, if what mom is saying, it doesn't square with what everybody who knows these people and their social worker and their GAL and their school, the kids school teachers. And, you know, if what she's saying is totally different then you know, that's, it may not be right. Um, and, you know, vice versa. So, Collateral sources can be interviews, like talking to people. Um, so you might talk to people uh, in someone's family. You might talk to employers or counselors or, for a criminal defendant, talk to jail staff um, or hospital staff. And then collateral sources are also records, including records that go far back in time. So you would brought up the the situation of, you know, the psychologist says that he only had this problem starting right now, but how do they know it started then? Um Hopefully, especially in criminal cases, there are a lot of records that can go back a long time, you know, go, go back far in time. And so you can look to these written records as well to be able to um, uh, kind of triangulate, you know, what's, what's real, what actually happened, when did these things start, um, and try to arrive at a, arrive at a conclusion. And, um, you know, it sounds like just a lot of the people that you've been dealing with, unfortunately, aren't really performing to a good standard of practice. And although that doesn't surprise me, I'm, I'm sad to hear it.
0: Yeah. Well, and it happens a lot. You know, I think it happens a lot. Um because as you pointed out, you know, we you kind of glossed over it, but resources are limited. You know, I mean, who is oh, going yeah, to pay Oh, yeah, absolutely you know, a psychologist, X number of hundreds of dollars an hour to, you know, search through old records and call the school principal and to, you know, I mean, it, it's just it's oh, uh, yeah. in some ways not realistic. Okay, so we've kind of laid the groundwork here on what forensic psychology is, how forensic psychology uh, operates. Why hmm. this research? What led to this research? Think
1: so the – uh The original question that kind of led to this research was sort of what you brought up, these nagging complaints from judges, from attorneys, from people in the legal system, people, you know, people who are involved in the legal system saying, I think I think an expert's opinion is only as good as the money they're being paid or, you know, I think that. Uh, expert will come to whatever conclusion anybody wants them to come up with. There's just been, and this goes back hundred, like a oh, hundred years. We have, you know, judges from the early 1900s or, you know, late 1800s saying, um, you know, the only the only kind of uh, evidence that's worth less than nothing is medical evidence, like that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and so there's there's always been this concern or complaint in the legal system that experts are kind of hired guns or, uh, forgive me, whores of the court or things like that. Um, This language is often thrown around, um, but there really wasn't almost any research to see whether it was true or not, or if it was, what we could do about it. Um, And so it was a desire to kind of confirm or disconfirm these long-held beliefs in the criminal justice system that led to this line of research about bias and unreliability within forensic psych.
0: Okay. So I have to ask just a little aside question. Was it tough? Sure to do this research was it tough to get uh, uh, backing for this research was it tough to uh, gather information for this research because it sounds to me you know i mean it, forensic experts are kind of a sacred cow and it, it, it appears to me um that you don't really you know uh, mess with that so was it easy to to do this research
1: well i'll um I'll give uh, Professor Murray's story, he's my research mentor and the one who started a lot of this, that um, when he was first thinking about it, he definitely was told, you know, don't do this, it will ruin your career um, by some. But then many other people said, yes, I'm worried about this for myself. Um, Please look into this because I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. Um, So I would say like most fields, there were some people who kind of didn't want it looked into or were worried that it might uh, sort of cast a bad light on the whole field. But then an also great and I hope greater percentage of people within the field who said, yes, I want research about this because I want to make sure that I'm doing a good job. Um, And we've definitely seen kind of both responses since then.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's an interesting thing. When I first stumbled across, and I should explain uh, to the listeners, actually, uh, this article, um, this research uh, was published in Transitional Issues in Psychological Science, uh, 2017, Volume 3, Number 2, and that's a publication of the American Psychological Association. And again, it's called Why Do Forensic Experts Disagree? Sources of Unreliability and Bias. In forensic psychology evaluations, and Lucy uh, was one of the researchers uh, participating in that. So, tell us how you proceeded with this. What's the, the the structure of this research? Did you go through records? Did you? How did how did you conduct the research?
1: Yeah. So, the the kind of the first wave of research started in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, before I got on board. But I certainly uh, have have read it and know about it. Was looking at Um, records of, like, case records of cases that had already happened. Um, So what was used for a lot of the early research were sexually violent predator proceeding transcripts. So for those who may not know, um, sexually violent predator proceedings or SVP proceedings are uh, available in a lot of states where a sexual offender can be convicted and serve their time in prison and then upon their release, there is a second sort of civil trial um, to, to determine whether they're going to be sort of released after their prison sentence or be civilly committed to a hospital for an indefinite term, um, with the concern being public safety. So this is this is the law in a lot of different states. Um, and so this uh, the reason that um, Dr. Murray and Dr. Bacchusini used these SVP trials is because there were a lot of them. Um, they were... Uh, available, and they used these instruments um, that uh, have readily sort of quantifiable opinions. So if you're going to do research about how often psychologists disagree, um, you kind of need some sort of measure to show whether they're agreeing or not. So in these SVP cases, they use these instruments that measure risk um, and uh, whether someone's degree of, of being a psychopath, these are pretty common common instruments that are used in these SVP proceedings. And they'll typically be one for the state, who's kind of the prosecution, if you think about it that way, and one for the respondent or the, you know, the person who committed the offense, who's kind of the defense, if you think about it that way. And typically you'll have a psychologist on both sides and they're both scoring these same instruments about risk and psychopathy for the same person. So it's kind of an ideal situation to be able to study this adversarial allegiance question because you've got all these cases that have psychologists on both sides doing these quantifiable metrics on the same person. So it's, it's just an ideal situation to study this. And so in this first wave of research, when they're looking at all of these, um, uh, you know, all of these uh, SVP cases. They found overwhelming evidence that that, that uh, uh, experts hired by the state, who's kind of like the prosecution, score these uh, risk assessments as, as more risky. So people who are working for the state, who are hired by the state, score these assessments to say that, you know, this, this guy is likely to do it again. And the psychologists who are working for the respondent, kind of the defense, score these assessments in a way that say this guy is probably not going to do it again. Um, and this was just an overwhelming, very consistent finding um, in all of this kind of archival research that they were doing in the in the first wave.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it's the same test, and yet the interpretation. Uh, it, it would seem to me that if we're talking a quantifiable test, that you just look at the numbers and you go, "Okay, you know."
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, so that, that's actually a really important point is that in this early wave of research, they were actually coming to different numbers. So for example, uh, you know, psych, the psychopathy test goes from zero to 40. So maybe the prosecutor finds a 30 and the, the defense side finds a 20 or something. Um, There's actually some later waves of research, which this is what, this really fascinates me and just goes to show <laughs> the extent to which humans can inject their own kind of opinions and bias into things. Um, even uh, in later ways of research, even if psychologists come to the same actual number on the test, you know, if a test from zero to ten, they both come up with a five, um, there are different ways of interpreting that number through which which norms you select, what you're comparing that number to, um, which mean different things. So even if you come to literally the same number, you can still sort of inject bias and adversarial allegiance by the the, the people on the prosecution side saying, "I'm going to select these norms that mean that means that five looks more risky." And the, uh, the people on the defense side can select norms that, say, that show that this person with a five is less risky. So any, any little gap, any little uh, opening that we have for human judgment to get into some process, you're going to see bias. You're going to see unreliability. That just, that's the way people work.
0: Yeah. Well, we're human beings, aren't we? Um, but yeah. But when we're looking at, at things like, you know, the, you know should we release a, a convicted sex offender? I mean, we don't want to just be human beings. We want to be sure Absolutely, sure. Okay, so that was the first wave of research. That implies that there's a second wave. What was the second wave? Yeah, so the,
1: this first wave of research I was talking about, um, this was using real cases in real life. And the only problem with that is that uh, because it's kind of what scientists say is an uncontrolled study, meaning this is real life, so there could be a lot of different things going on, you can't rule out the possibility of selection effects, which is something that I mentioned before. So it might be the case that in kind of these real-world settings, um, different attorneys are picking uh, psychologists they already know are going to be sympathetic to their side, or they might have picked a lot of different people. They might have sort of consulted with a lot of different psychologists and just picked the one who was the most favorable. And then on the other side, you also have selection effects with the, the clinicians or psychologists themselves, where, um, you know, if I'm sort of... Dr. Softy, very kind of pro-defendant, anti-law and order, maybe I wouldn't even accept a referral from uh, the state in an SVP case because I don't want to be responsible for, you know, sending a, uh, a uh, somewhat away for potentially the rest of their life in a civil commitment um, facility. And so maybe I only select, I only accept referrals from sides where I'm already likely to agree with them. So that could absolutely be happening and probably, it, it probably does happen. We have some good evidence that that, that does happen. And so you can't rule that out um, uh, using this archival research that was Wave 1. So Wave 2 was doing um, a true experiment. So in an experiment, you are controlling everything to the extent that you can, um, and so you can rule out uh, selection effects. So in this experiment, um, which I was directly a part of, um, we uh, recruited over 100 doctoral-level psychiatrists and psychologists And basically fooled them into thinking that they were doing a consultation for, um, you know, a a real life, real world consultation where they were going to score some risk assessment measures for some, for a bunch of defendants. And um, in fact, this wasn't real, it was for a study, but they didn't know that. And uh, they were randomly assigned to either think they were working for the prosecution or the state in an SVP case, or that they were working for kind of the defense or the respondent in this SVP case. And, um... There was a, there was like extensive deception involved. We had an attorney come in and kind of play the part. He was either you know with half the people he was pretending to be this prosecution attorney, with half the people he was pretending to be this defense attorney. Um, we had real records that we kind of doctored up and added things in. Um, and like I said, the value of doing this true experiment is that we can rule out selection effects. We know since we randomly assign people to one side or the other, it's not that lawyers are picking people who are you know, more inclined to their side, and it's not that psychologists are picking sides they're already more aligned to. They're randomly assigned. And so even when we did this randomly random assignment, we found allegiance effects, um, where if you were working, you thought you were working for the prosecution, you scored these risk assessment measures as more risky. You know, this guy is bad, better lock him up. And if you thought you were working for the defense, you were more likely to score lower. You know, this guy's not so bad. Maybe he doesn't need to be committed.
0: Wow. And Throughout this extensive two-part study, what were your conclusions?
1: Well, the conclusions are that um, adversarial allegiance operates independently of selection effects, so it's something that's kind of intrinsic to the system itself. You know, all those things I talked about before, people felt that they were on a team, they talked to this attorney, they'd received some initial information that kind of anchored them to think that these guys are really bad or these guys weren't so bad. there also, you know, you have talked a, a fair bit about the money aspect. There was also payment in this study. Uh, participants were paid $400 for a day of um, this instrument scoring, which uh, is a, a relatively realistic wage for sort of a day's work um, for this kind, of, this kind of task. And we wanted to include the money because that is, um, that is a part of forensic practice, and that's certainly something that's at work when you're thinking about adversarial allegiance. There is that you know, even if it's not an explicit concern like, oh yes, I'm gonna find whatever finding they want so that I'll get paid more money, there is probably this implicit I- implicit idea of, well, if if they like me, they might hire me again. Um and, you know, so that that can that money concern definitely can shift opinions one way or the other.
0: Yeah, but that dollar amount is not significant to sway somebody one way or the other. I mean it, it, it might be a um a compensation. I mean, it's it, it, it's not. How can I phrase this? It, it, it's not so much that oh, somebody would be willing to compromise <laughs> or uncut. You know what I'm saying? It's it's yeah. It's so that,
1: like- I think that's right. But that that kind of gets to the point that I I, I really want to hammer home is that most people. I'm not saying all, but most people are not having that explicit hired gun behavior where they're saying consciously to themselves. I'm going to shift my findings away from what I think is true so that I can find what these people want. I think some, I'm sure some people do do that and that's terrible, but I don't think that's the major problem with our system overall. The problem is that money biases people, even if you don't want it to just this idea of, Oh, this person's hiring me, they're paying me. So I just have this unconscious desire to please them. Um, and that's, that's how I think money affects people, I think that's the bigger influence of money in the system as a whole. You definitely have some hired guns somewhere and they should uh you know that that's awful. Um but that's not the the biggest issue I would say.
0: Okay. All right. So again, the findings were that you did find bias, that you did find mm-hmm. um these issues. What's that mean for me and Joe down the road?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um so, I guess on a on a personal level, if you're, you know, if you're if you're an attorney or you're going to court and um, you know, and you're facing an expert or hiring an expert on your side, um, you definitely want to be aware of these issues, know that they can happen and, you know, it's potentially something to to be brought up um uh during during the court case in some way. Particularly, you'd want to see all right, if, you know, if there is a battle of the experts where people disagree, kind of who, who did a better job, um, who had a better procedure, who was uh, doing things according to the best standard of practice possible. Um, so if if a psychologist, you know, you're, you're facing an expert in court and they are not agreeing with you and you think they're wrong, um, you want to see if they kind of did things the best way that they, they can. Did they interview collateral sources? Did they use well-validated psychological testing measures? Um, uh, you know, are they, are they, uh, looking specifically at the legal standard, um, for that state or are they kind of using, you know, whatever they think ought to be the competency or sanity standard, all these things, um, that, uh, that, that's something that, um, that, you know, you're a lawyer or you can, can think about and ask about and, um, and, and bring up and should be brought up. You know, I, um, I think all friends of psychologists tremble under difficult cross-examination, but I think we also feel that we, we, you know, we should be cross-examined. We should be asked about our opinions and the source of our opinions and the evidence underlying our opinions, why we came to certain conclusions or recommendations. And if the evidence isn't there, then that should be exposed in the, in the courtroom um, because um, that's, that's how it ought to work. Um, and so if someone points out a weakness in, you know, a lawyer points out a weakness in your argument or a weakness in your reasoning, that that's kind of that's that's okay. That should be known to the court, um, and so you you as uh, someone in the legal system can also take an at, uh, an active role in pointing those things out and looking at those things in the courtroom.
0: All right. So uh, we have a, a, a lot of friends of the show who uh, represent themselves in court pro se. That they are not attorneys, uh, but by mm-hmm. golly, you know, after going through, for example, you know, extensive child custody proceedings, um, they. They're they're pretty sharp on a lot of these things, and what I'm hearing you say is that if you're in that situation, or even if you have a hired attorney, um, you want to look at the expert witness and not just assume that because uh, he or she is, is is referred to as an expert witness that that means that they are in fact operating expertly. Is that an accurate?
1: Yes, I would say that I would say that's the case. You want to know. Um, You know, what's their experience in forensics specifically, not just general psychology? And then for this particular um, evaluation that they're, or this report that they're talking about the court with, what did, you know, what did they actually do? Um, If this is a a type of evaluation, like say a risk assessment, where it's the standard of practice to use a, um, you know, empirically validated instrument, did they use an instrument or not? And what instrument did they use? There's certainly some that are better than others or more commonly used than others. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is, it is difficult. I, am you know, I'm saying this and I'm just thinking this is a level of expertise that is difficult for kind of the layman or even the average attorney to really know about. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, people are swayed by kind of the veneer of expertise because they just understandably don't know enough to go beyond. This is what the doctor said in the report to what do they actually did? Did they do, did they do a good job? You know, did they, uh, did they perform to the standard of practice or not?
0: Yeah, and that's tough. So, what what are you going to do from here? Usually, when people do these kinds of studies, they do a couple, or they massage the data differently and come up with new conclusions and new information. What's next? Um, what's What's the follow up for this, this study?
1: So, um, one thing that we're excited to look at in some way, if we can. Is uh, what actually happens in forensic evaluations? Because there's, um, you know, I guess there's another source of potential unreliability or bias that I haven't really brought up yet, which is what is the what is the examinee offering? Um, you know, if you're uh, most forensic evaluations involve some sort of interview, where the psychologist is interviewing either a criminal defendant or a civil litigant, and um, your manner of interviewing can change what kind of information you're actually getting from somebody. Um, but we don't really know to what extent that operates, and that might explain some of the differences that you see. You know, if you've got um, someone who's really empathetic and kind and open and welcoming and they're interviewing somebody, maybe they'll get more different information from someone who's maybe harsher or more closed off or, you know, who knows? You could think of all sorts of uh, situations where the person being interviewed might provide different information. Um, to the, uh, the person interviewing them. So that, that's one interest. Um, another would be um, trying to think about what is uh, relevant or irrelevant information in, a, in all different kinds of forensic psychology evaluations. So this is sort of borrowed from the forensic science realm. Um, so, you know, DNA, fingerprints, that kind of stuff where they've been, that, that whole field has been really active now in thinking, what do we actually need to know to do our job to actually match these fingerprints or match these DNA samples or whatever? What do we actually need to know? And anything beyond that, let's make sure we don't know it because it's just going to be biasing, you know, like irrelevant case details. Um, you don't need to know that when you're just matching fingerprints, things like that. All that can do is kind of bias you one way or the other. It's not going to help you match the fingerprints. So kind of inspired by that, uh, I think it's important for the field of forensic psychology to think, what do we actually need to know um, when we're doing these evaluations and how can we sort of blind ourselves or avoid learning things that are not going to be helpful, that are only going to be biasing. And I think the, you know, the most obvious example there is the source of um, referral or the, the person retaining them. In a lot of cases, it is not necessary for you to know whether you're being hired by the prosecution or the defense. Um, that's, you know, it, it's not necessary to do the evaluation, and all it can do is bias you in one direction or another. Um, so they're sort of piloting using blind referrals um, here at UVA at the uh, Institute of Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy, where you have a sort of a case manager who handles the communication with the attorney and communication with the psychologist, but never the twain shall meet. So they don't, they don't, the psychologist doesn't know who they've been hired by until kind of the end. Um, so I think that's really exciting. Um, and uh, the more kind of research and just, like, practice efforts can be done in that regard um, could, make a, could make a real difference because um, it's not, that's not that hard to do. Um, there's some of these changes where it's like you need a lot of money or you need a lot of infrastructure or you need to change all these things about the legal system or the government or something, but it's not that hard to do to hide, hide from yourself whether you're working for the prosecution or defense. So that seems like a really promising, really possible um, direction to go in. Um, and there's even well, some, talking, some research evidence. Oh, go ahead.
0: Uh, when you were talking um, earlier, I was thinking, but, you know, why can't we do it where the court just hires um, these individuals uh, rather than the individual sides hiring the individuals?
1: Yeah, so that, that's a really great point, and some systems do do it that way. The only um, the only caveat I would give to that is because uh, if if you're going to hire a neutral expert or a coin-appointed expert, it's probably better to have more than one. And the reason I would say that is a lot of cases, like I said, really really are gray area or really are very difficult. And um, just having one sort of one neutral expert being portrayed as you know the objective source of truth really probably isn't going to accurately reflect the difficulty of that case, and that really could be injustice for that one person. Um, so there, there are states that do it this way, like uh, Hawaii is the most well-known example. In Hawaii, for uh, uh, felony defendants who are up for a competency or a sanity evaluation, they, by law, get three neutral evaluators to do the evaluation on them, three people hired by the courts. Um, that's a really great system um, to sort of curb the the impact of any one person's maybe biased or wrong or not-so-good opinion if you've got three people. The reason a lot of states don't do that probably is it's pretty expensive and it's pretty time-consuming. Um, so the more states that can follow Hawaii's lead, the better. Um, but uh, that, that isn't happening right now. I, I hope it will happen in the future.
0: One of the things that I'd like to see, and, and as I told you, of course, I, my, one of my big interests is child custody cases where I see sure. – Psychologists you know really doing some uh, interesting stuff um and yeah. I would love to see a research uh uh into the psychology uh psychologists and expert witnesses when it comes to child custody cases um or abuse cases um that would be you know tuck that tuck that away'cause I think that would be a good one for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I will say there's definitely been more research into criminal cases, things like competency and sanity and risk assessment, than there has been into civil issues, particularly child custody um, and child abuse. Really not as much as known, and the standards of practice are less clear. There are fewer instruments available. So it, it is, um, I, I'm not surprised that you're seeing more bad practice in that area, just because the standards are more loosey-goosey, um, and so you're, you're getting more of people just doing what they think is right, um, and so that that definitely is an area that needs to be looked into more um, of getting more consistent uh, standard of practice in the in the civil arena.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I as I told you at the beginning of the show, I'm I'm absolutely gobsmacked sometimes um, at the comments that you know practicing psychologists throw out to me um, uh, when I'm doing some talk of, you know, talks around the country. And I'm, I'm just, I, I remember <laughs> looking at one psychologist, I think it was in Virginia. Oh, oh gosh, I think it was in Virginia. And he <laughs> said, something about, well, you know, this is the case, blah, blah, blah. And I just looked at him and I went, do you do evaluations for courts? And he went, yes. And I went, oh my God. I mean, I just said that. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I'm, I, I as an individual, as a person I'm sure he was nice, he was well-meaning He, was, But wow Was he Wow, you know, I mean it was just astounding yeah. And of course, you know, we hear All the time from people um, You know, the, these egregious situations And I think what we're talking here is the forensic psychologist. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody would uh, purposely just go find, you know, a marriage counselor out there to do an evaluation of this magnitude. If if you're talking sex offenders and you know, uh, civil incarceration, etc. Um, but when you come, when it comes to child custody issues, um, they, I mean, anybody who has a shingle out there is is welcome, you know, to provide input uh, and provide his or her ex- you know, quote-unquote expert opinion on trial custody. And wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. definitely
1: a bit more of the Wild West because there's just, there's there's a much uh, more divergent and less clear standard of practice and fewer, uh, fewer instruments available.
0: Absolutely. I'm looking at our time, Lucy, and I appreciate your explanation. This is a tough topic, and it's a pretty sophisticated topic. Um, It's not um, uh, something that a lot of people are uh, involved with, but I think that all of us are interested in this, uh, if for no other reason than we see it on TV. We see the expert witness who comes in and, you know, uh, gobsmacks the court with his opinion or her opinion and and, you know so we're all aware of the expert witnesses but i don't think we're all aware of the potential for problems and confusion and uh, misinterpretation by the uh, expert witnesses so i appreciate your research and i appreciate your explaining it to us and taking so much time we've got two minutes left did i miss uh some sort of point that you'd like to make before we close the show Hmm.
1: I will. Well, since you brought up the media, um, I will uh, harp on that a little bit. I think that a lot of what we see on TV and in movies um, is, of course, of course, not accurate. I think we all know that. But in these really subtle ways, kind of um, su- supports uh, beliefs about adversarial allegiance. And so I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. If you've ever seen Law and Order, any of the Law and Orders, SVU, or the original, or whatever. Um, the the forensic psychologists are just kind of hanging out in the the police station. They just they yeah. kind of work there, and the cops yeah. come back and just kind of ask them advice on the fly. Um, that is absolutely like not what we do at all. Um, you know that would be that would be such an us them mentality to be working explicitly with the police, like in there in their office talking with them, um, and to be offering this kind of advice on the fly without a specific referral question. Meaning like you know. Was this person competent to stand trial, or or is this person competent to stand trial or not? um, You know that it's just going to be you're going to be so much more likely to have a a biased opinion or an uninformed opinion if you're just throwing out advice left and right based on a comment from a cop. So, those are kind of portrayals are not how forensic psychologists work. And if we did work that way, I think the problem would be even worse. um, Kind of making uh making the process more formal, making sure we gather all the relevant information first and trying to reduce this kind of us them mentality um is, is the way to go, um not the not the law and order way.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well I appreciate that and I think that's true. Um I think that uh, I usually end the show with a quote and i think i've i 've got a, a good one um and <laughs> I, it 's interesting to just google uh expert witnesses um and uh, see what kind of quotes there are out there and there 's there 's uh kind of uh some interesting stuff um and, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm sitting here going through my things, and I'm, and I'm just, okay, here it is. What's an expert? I read somewhere that the more a man knows, the more he knows, he doesn't know. So I suppose one definition of an expert would be somebody who d- doesn't admit out loud that he doesn't know anything. Thank you so much for, for joining us on Three Women, Absolutely. Three Ways. Join us again next week.